Hi, this is Josh Porter. I'm on a team with several other men and women who together help lead this thing called Van City Church. This year, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, some of our musicians got together and wrote and recorded a song called Broken King, and we released it under the band name End of Death. It's available now from all digital music retailers and streaming services like Apple Music, Spotify, iTunes, and the like. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part two in the series, Practicing the Way, Naming Your Stage of Apprenticeship. All of discipleship is going somewhere. The winding road of this journey, tangled and complicated though it may be, is moving toward love. To us, love seems such a nebulous, indistinct thing, subjective, open to interpretation. But Jesus and the authors of the Bible have something very specific, something painstakingly defined in mind when they teach the ways of love. And discipleship is a journey to learn what it is and how we go about doing it. Um, Go ahead and when you have a Bible, uh, open to Luke chapter 24, the Gospel of Luke Chapter 24. There's a lot of wickedy wires up here. Watch out for those. Um, I find, personally, bumper stickers hilarious and fascinating, and I always notice them, much to the chagrin of my wife. I just read them out loud, and she's like, what? What are you talking about? I'm like, oh, the bumper stickers. So how do you notice these? I don't have any issues with stickers or anything. I don't have any issues with like ideas articulated on stickers or stickers as some kind of aesthetic decision. But uh, in the greater Portland metro area, bumper stickers are often like this kind of passive-aggressive silent opinion war that's going on in traffic. Uh, It's like a place to broadcast bold and direct positions on things like politicians and guns or even frustrations with other people's bumper stickers. So there's stickers that say things like, my kid beat up your honor student, or like my T-Rex family ate your stick family, my zombie family ate your stick family, as if that's cooler or whatever. So I saw one yesterday that was a line of like a descending assault rifles meant to parody the traditional stick family, and it said, this is my family, which seems really healthy and (laughs) well-adjusted. Here's one of my all-time favorites, though. Uh, It's a campaign sticker for the giant meteor. Just end it already. There's ones for 2020 as well if you want one of those. But this this is the best one ever, and I saw it uh, in Portland a couple weeks ago, and it's this. Opinions. (laughs) Okay. Me and Mike liked it a lot. Right, Mike? Mike was like, where'd that come from? I'm going to get that. Um, But often, bumper stickers project a kind of direct and profoundly empty idea into the always uninterested traffic, right? No one's ever changed their, hey, that bumper sticker made an excellent point. Um, Take, for example, the famous or infamous Love Wins bumper sticker. I I attract the history of the Love Wins bumper sticker this week. Uh, This particular variety seems to have originated many years ago at Mars Hill Bible Church in Granville, Michigan. Grand Rapids, well, their current address is in Granville, Michigan, jeez, correct, wow, okay. Many, no, it's totally fine. Many years later, 
this uh, church in Grand Rapids or Granville, whichever, uh, their pastor, uh, the lead pastor of that church, Rob Bell, published a controversial book under the same title, which became the most famous moniker for those two words together at that time. After that, the phrase was adopted by the LGBT community for pride celebrations and stickers proliferated in that direction. In 2018, I learned it became a Carrie Underwood single. Um, today, which is, doesn't it look glorious? Jeez, <laughs> subtle. Um, today, it features prominently on lawn signs throughout my neighborhood sold by an organization called NWGSD, or Nasty Women Get Bleep Done. Um, right there on line two, uh, on the top right, is Love Wins. And yet, if you think about it, what Mars Hill Bible uh, meant by Love Wins differed from what Rob Bell eventually articulated with, uh, in his book, Love Wins, which was different than what the LGBT community meant by the same phrase, which was not what Carrie Underwood sang from what I could tell reading the lyrics, which was not what this line, lawn sign addresses. And who knows what in the world it means on innumerable cars that I follow heading in and out of Portland and Vancouver. Now, the Bible obviously has its own very specific paradigm for this divisive idea that we call love. Whatever it is, it is, in the story of the Scriptures, the highest aspiration of anyone who would follow Jesus. So, for example, when asked about the greatest commandment in the entire Bible, Jesus replied quite simply with what? Love God, love other people. Exactly. Later, one of Jesus' apprentices and close friends would write this in the New Testament. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. That's where it originates. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The journey of discipleship is going somewhere, and that somewhere is love. Last week, we began a new series and a practice in our communities around the idea of naming your stage of apprenticeship or discipleship to Jesus. If you missed last week, go back, catch up on the podcast. For now, here's the very brief recap. The authors of the New Testament often speak to our journey of following Jesus in terms of stages. We are at one point in the spiritual journey like newborns, and then we're like infants and toddlers and small children and adolescents and so on. It isn't a simple or linear journey, but down throughout church history, all sorts of writers and thinkers dating all the way back to the fourth century and on have worked with this idea of stages, and it's come to be known as stage theory. The whole point being, if you have an idea of where you are in the journey, you stand to be better equipped for that stage of the journey. Ruth Haley Barton says it really well and really simply when she writes, the classic stages of the spiritual journey are an attempt to describe the different movements we experience along the way. We all experience these stages, whether we know how to name them or not. The beauty of knowing the spiritual stages is that one, whatever we are experiencing, we can know others have gone before. And two, it helps us to know what to expect and what is needed on the journey. And the goal of it all is, as Jesus, as John put so beautifully, love. Not as defined by a bumper sticker or political cause, but as defined by King Jesus, which is love as the deliberate, active decision of will and discipline 
to value another and their own good above yourself, stranger or neighbor, friend or enemy. Now, to unpack this a bit, let's read a love story. This is a story we actually just read a few weeks ago to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but I want to visit it, revisit it tonight and examine it from another angle. So if you're already in Luke chapter 24, look down and let's read beginning with verse 13. This story takes place just a little while after Jesus has been executed by the state and he is presumed dead. Luke chapter 24 verse 13 says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened, all this stuff about Jesus being arrested and executed. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But, listen to this, we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what's more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. He, Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are. How slow to believe all the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, in other words, the entire New Testament, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them, just as he had done days before prior to his arrest and death. Then, when they saw this, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. <laughs> they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it's true. The Lord has risen. He has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Now, why revisit this text tonight, just a little while after Easter, in a series that's, of all things, about naming your stage of apprenticeship? So look at it this way. There are some key elements in this story that sound pretty familiar to the modern sensibility. For starters, in this story, with these disciples, people who were just following Jesus, their faith in Jesus at this point in the story seems to be over. Hope has been lost. Think of that sad, dejected-sounding line in verse 21. They crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So they're sad. The text even says that when Jesus asked what they're talking about, they stood still, their faces downcast. So confusion reigns, 
despair? What are we doing? What the heck are we supposed to believe now? What should we do with our lives? This reminds me of the common American millennial narrative of bailing out on Jesus. In his epic poem, The Divine Comedy, Dante is led by Virgil, if you know the story, to the gates of hell, where Dante is troubled by the gate's inscription, which reads, Through me pass into the painful city. Through me pass into eternal grief. Through me pass among the lost people. All hope abandon. You who enter here. And I thought about this week, this uh, inscription on the gates of hell this week, because in our kind of collective cultural narrative, this is the banner that hangs over life in the modern world. Deconstructing faith, abandoning ship, denouncing Jesus, sociopolitical vitriol, the world's coming to an end, the sky is falling, it's a trend, it's a cliché. And the aimlessness of the neo-agnostic is glamorized. Thank goodness we got out. Isn't it so liberating to believe in nothing or everything or something new that I made up? Watch me sell books. Watch me gather podcast revenues. Watch me gather social media followers. And a kind of melancholy hangs in the air over all of it. Sadness, confusion, aimlessness. This is the story of the road to Emmaus, a story we know well in 2019. And if Jesus was dead, as these disciples believed at the time, the story makes perfect sense. Why would we have faith? Why would we continue to walk the narrow road of discipleship? The New Testament itself argues that if Jesus stayed dead, discipleship to Jesus is a sham. It makes no sense. It's a waste of time. Were I not personally a disciple of Jesus, were I not, I would be an easy and convinced nihilist. This is pointless. This is meaningless. Human purpose, our potential, our goodness, the promise of utopia, it is all a sham. But if that tomb was indeed empty, if Jesus is indeed alive, if the resurrection is true, then everything Jesus said has been validated by God as true. His validation of God himself, the goodness of God, the things Jesus taught about, the incomprehensible and relentless love of God, it is all true if Jesus is alive. And that changes everything. Death is not the inevitable final statement on the randomness of the universe. Death is an intruder in the story of the Bible, an enemy in the world of God who is love. God is love. We're not heading to entropy and death as a destination in the final sense, but we are en route to its undoing, to justice and goodness over all of creation and the cosmos. And that is good news, or as the scriptures say, gospel. Life is meaningful, not meaningless. We are sons and daughters, not just atoms and animals. We are made from love and for love, not from and for nothing at all. Suffering and death are robbed of ultimate power but imbued with new purpose, meaning God's design and, and His will is not for suffering, not for death. He doesn't ordain or predetermine or cause suffering or death, but He walks with us in pain. He uses it to mature and grow us. He brings intimacy out of agony. Just this past week in our community, we were working through the first practice, talking about the three ways, um, the three stages of discipleship. And my good friend Tab mentioned that one of his most profound tastes of the final stage of uh, discipleship, which is something called union, that the first big glimpse of it or one of the most meaningful glimpses of it that he got was when someone, when, of all things, when someone in his family died. 
one of the first or worst things that could have happened, not God's will, not God's plan, but God drew near, and He brought intimacy and maturity and growth. A few months ago, I was teaching as a guest at another church on the problem of evil, which is one of my favorite topics to teach on. And a gentleman approached me afterward, and he was in tears, and he said that he and his wife had lost a child a few years prior, and he had allowed himself to believe that God did it. Because such tremendous faith and intimacy with God had grown from the awful soil of this horrible thing, and he thought, doesn't that mean that God intended it? Doesn't that mean that God did this with a purpose? And I said, no, it means God, like any good friend or father, comes to hold us in our pain. And as He walks us through the fire, we grow, and we know Him better, and we love Him more. So life has meaning, and suffering has been subverted for meaning, and there is hope for the future. This story is going somewhere. The story that began in a garden reached an apex moment in the life, death, resurrection of a peasant Jewish rabbi in the ancient Near East, of all things. And we live in the wake of that story. We are en route to its triumphant conclusion. The end of the story is love. The kingdom of God, as Jesus called it, is both now and not yet. It's here. It's been inaugurated. It's breaking in. We see glimpses of it all the time. But yet, it is yet to be realized in full. So we wait. And as we wait, we walk the road of discipleship. It's not pointless. It's not without meaning or purpose. We're going somewhere. And the somewhere we are going is love. In the story we read tonight, the hope the disciples held for Jesus was that He would be Israel's Messiah. They said that we had hoped He would be the one to redeem Israel, and He was. But in a beautiful bit of romantic storytelling, the narrative of a few apprentices following their teacher becomes something much more, much different than just the hope for a king over Israel. This story is about love. These young, often bumbling, if you know the story, disciples of Jesus were called under the lordship of Jesus under the pretense of something more profound than his claims to be Israel's king. He was, but it was about more than that. It was about love. Having returned from the dead, if you know the story, Jesus sits on a beach with his friends, his close friend and apprentice Peter is there, and he asks Peter several times, not, do you believe I am the Messiah, though that question was relevant and pertinent. Instead, he asks Peter, what? Do you love me? We have been called to love by the one who loves. Again, this from 1 John. We love because he first loved us. Not an ambiguous, open-ended, define it how you will kind of love for bumper stickers and political causes, but love as it originates from God is defined by God and it finds its sole purpose in God. All that to say, your apprenticeship journey is about love. The end goal of apprenticeship to Jesus is to reach a kind of disposition out of which you operate by default, and that disposition is God's love, in which you live and think and act from the default setting of Jesus' love. Now, you won't be perfect. You'll still make mistakes. You will still sin, as the Bible says, but the mistakes are no longer your baseline disposition. Instead, 
love is, the meaning that we all crave as human beings, as thinking animals, however you want to put it, is love. And this life pursuit is sometimes compacted into a single word, for better or for worse, and that word is faith. So people describe discipleship to Jesus as my faith. Or they describe the belief system as someone el- of someone else as oh, their faith. Faith is, for many, a religious kind of word, but really, faith is an entirely human concept. Humans can't live or function without faith in something. At the most base level, it's things like the fact that there's a sunrise and a sunset, oxygen, gravity, that kind of thing. Or things we take for granted, like a plane will land, hopefully. Uh, a friend will show up when we need them, waking up in the morning thing is, not all things in which we have faith also have meaning. Gravity may seem a faithful attribute of existence in the world, but it doesn't offer any meaning to existence. And we as human beings are wired neurologically to search for meaning, to search for order in chaos. In fact, neurobiologists argue that the human brain reaches for meaning by default, for coherence, for something in all of this. And whether one follows Jesus has a religious or spiritual kind of worldview, or is entirely naturalistic in their thinking, we all live into some kind of meaning, good or bad. That meaning might be to study, or to shop, or to travel, or to educate, or have sex, or work, or have a family, or broadcast your life on social media, to rally for a cause, or a politician, or a nonprofit, or a business, or whatever. Thing is, These things, some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are kind of neutral. They won't, in and of themselves, grow us in union and love with God. Bernard of Clairvaux was a French abbot who believed the spiritual journey featured four stages of love. I think this is really fascinating. He argued that it all begins with the love of self, what he called immature love. This is the kind of love we all begin with. It's a baseline disposition of humanity, survival, what the Scriptures call the flesh. But then comes the love of God for the self. And this is about when you learn to love God, but you love God for what's in it for you, the spiritual or emotional validation that you get from God, the blessing, the reward, the security. It's not all bad, not by any means. This love is not all bad, but ultimately it won't measure up. Because God, if you get to know Him, is so counterintuitive. He defies our small and simplistic aspirations for comfort or contentment. And eventually you begin to realize, often with much difficulty, if you're anything like me, that God is actually bigger and better than our small love paradigm could contain. So you move on from there to the love of God for God rather than the self. And this is what the abbot called unselfish love. We're learning to love God as a person, his company, his personality. We love God because of who God is. We want God, not for a reward, not for the emotional high, but because he's God. And finally, that's not it. The final stage that you take up in the journey is the love of self for God. Bernard called this perfect love. Because in this stage, our love has been so nourished and nurtured in God, 
so filled by him that it spills out onto the world. Ourselves first, other people, creation itself, friends and enemies. Our love for God is so great and so effortless that we love as he loves. Like Jesus said, with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. I think again, I think again of John who wrote of being made perfect in love. So before we end tonight, I want to think about discipleship, or lack thereof, if that's not you, but all of it as beginning on the road to Emmaus. That's all of us. At one point, hope seems, at best, elusive, and at worst, non-existence. Think of that line again, uh, the haunting line, we had hoped, meaning we no longer hope that he will be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that would be him. Think of what often feels like an overwhelming cultural narrative of abandoning discipleship rather than persevering in it, which makes sense, honestly. Giving up on Jesus is, in many ways, easy. Sticking with Jesus is hard, and he was actually very clear about that, which makes sense. Giving up on the way of Jesus, the community of the church, that's certainly the easier way, the more comfortable way at a superficial level anyway. Following Jesus through the fire of discipleship, that's brave. Living in the messy imperfection of community with other people trying to do the same thing, that's really hard. But if the tomb is empty, then we are going somewhere, and love is the end of the story. And it isn't open for broad interpretation. God himself has defined love with overwhelming clarity, and his name is Jesus. This is why we live our entire lives into apprenticeship, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. So ask yourself tonight, where am I headed in the journey toward love? Is it immature or is it unselfish love into which I live and think and operate every day of my life in this season of my life? Am I self-preserving? Do I know how to love God for who he is yet? Am I not quite there? Or do I just love God for what he does for me? Is that my journey or my stage of the journey right now? When will I arrive at the next stage in mature love? In what ways have I glimpsed it right now in my own life, in seasons of suffering or moments of closeness? Because remember, the journey isn't as linear as some of us hope it might be. In fact, Glimpses of the destination break into the journey along the way, even at the very beginning. Each of us is up against our own unique wirings and dispositions and brokenness and shortcomings and defects as we all make the same journey. So it looks really different from disciple to disciple. The ways in which one person loves effortlessly and they make it seem so easy, they seem to some of us like an insurmountable, insurmountable obstacle in the road. But for others, it's the other way around. We're all being drawn in the same direction toward love. This week, when you head to practicingtheway.org with your community or some friends, if you're not yet in a community, you'll do some work talking through your unique personality and wiring the unique aspects of your journey as disciples and talk about how we all share the same attribute or the same um, broad journey, even if it looks very different from person to person. I was thinking about uh, this, this week, I was thinking about the way that I pray with my kids every night and before they go to bed. And when I do, I regularly pray something like, Jesus, teach me how to be a better dad every day. At one point in my life, I was not a dad. And then one day, out of nowhere, I was, just like, just like that. 
Um, some stuff happened before then, but uh, you go from zero experience to just a little bit of experience. You know, a doctor's like, so now this black stuff is going to come out of them. And you're like, oh, my God. And they're like, oh, that's normal. You know, if you, well, if you don't, look forward to that. Um, or ask someone about it if you're curious. So <laughs> you go from zero experience to just a little bit and then a little more. And ideally, you grow in wisdom. Other people speak into the journey and you grow in maturity. And all the while, you grow in love. So one night I was praying for my kids and I asked, show me how to love my kids more every day. And uh, laughing, my son Beck, uh, you know, interjected and said, but you say you already love us with your whole heart, which is true. That is something that I say. But I told him, I know that's true. I want to learn how to love even more because isn't it also true that I lose my patience sometimes? And don't I raise my voice, not, not always in healthy discipline, but in petty frustration? And don't I sometimes get distracted? Or don't I have to come to you and say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake? And no, I will never eclipse my potential to make mistakes. But if I learn how to love more, won't my life be, like Jesus said, a branch growing from the vine of Jesus, so to speak? And if I learn how to love more, won't my life readily and regularly grow the fruit of joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We don't expect a parent to walk in the ways of perfect love as they leave the hospital with newborn in tow. And that's what this practice is all about, really. This is a journey. You're on it. There are stages, and you are in one. If you have some idea as to where and what, what stage of the journey, you know how to embrace that stage. You know how to pray in that stage. You know how to learn from that stage. And as you do, you learn to walk in the ways of love. So ask what part of you is being changed by the love of God and look back over your story. Chances are Things have changed. If you've been following Jesus for any length of time, God has begun to change you from the inside out. Is it the way that you talk to other people or think about them, the compassion that you have for them, or your hope for the future that's changed, or your resilience in suffering that's changed? Or ask another question. What part of you is yet to be shaped by love? Is it your ability to feel contentment with where you are, or your fight with anxiety, or your temperament, or your ambition? I've been thinking a ton this week about a prayer that Ronald Rollheiser mentions early on in his book, Sacred Fire. And the prayer is taken from the writing of a Greek author who mused that there were perhaps three different types of souls, and they could each be summarized with three unique prayers. The first soul and their prayer is this, I am a bow in your hands, Lord. Draw me, lest I rot. The second type of soul in their prayer was, do not overdraw me, Lord, I shall break. But the third and final type of soul in their prayer was, overdraw me, Lord, and who cares if I break? And Rollheiser argues in his book that perhaps these prayers coincide with stages of the discipleship journey, which begins with essential discipleship. In other words, 
bare essentials, discipleship, the struggle to get our lives together. You've come into faith for the first time. You're coming up against sin. Oh, what's sin? I have to actually change. God is changing me. He's asking things of me, and it's different, and it's weird. And you move on to mature discipleship, which is the struggle to give your life away. And it is a struggle for each and every disciple of Jesus. But then eventually you move into radical discipleship, which is the struggle to give your death away. And we'll talk more about what that means and those mean before we finish this practice. But notice this, whether early or late stage, whether bare essentials or radical discipleship, it's all discipleship. In each of these stages, you follow Jesus. That is the common denominator. You learn to walk in the ways of love within the context of that stage. There are no bad stages. Our newborns, they love us by needing us for survival. Our small children, they draw us pictures to say that they love us. They say sweet, unpretentious things. As adults, you learn to love one another at personal expense with personal sacrifice as a disciplined, chosen thing that you do. Each stage has methods of love, expressions of love, and we don't fault the toddler for not loving like an adult, but we do expect that they will grow in the journey of life. If you follow Jesus, you are in a stage of your discipleship journey. Maybe it's bare essential, maybe it's mature, maybe it's radical, I don't know. What does it mean for you to know and walk in the ways of love in your stage of the journey? Because that's where all of this is headed. The end of the story is love. So let's pray together and ask God's Spirit to come and speak. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.